pursues us. Now we are to pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. So let us pursue those near us, those that he has set before us. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So run, chase those you know, chase those you love, for he has called us to build his kingdom. Well, I just want to take a moment and personally say happy nine years. It's, uh, it's been incredible. It's been incredible to see what God has done over that time. Uh, if you've been around for a while, you know that this church has gone through its ups and downs. We've experienced many changes, probably more changes than some of us were wanting, um, but God has been faithful through it all. We were just reflecting this morning before we came out of just the amazing things and the amazing uh, life story uh, or life change stories that we've heard. Uh, and it's just reminded me over these past few days, like yesterday I'm listening to these families talk about what God's done in their lives, stories I haven't heard before over the past year or two of being here. And it just makes me so grateful to be a part of a people who take the mission of God so seriously in this world and truly want God to move and expect him to move. And so I just want to say I'm honored to be on this journey with you guys, and, and I truly do believe that the best is yet to come. So for what it's worth, again, happy nine years. Love it. Love you guys. Hey, a couple things before we dive in. Uh, first, I mentioned this last week. I'm going to mention it again. The series that we're in, Pursuit, we, we thought it was such an important series that we needed to not only teach it here to you, but we needed to do it upstairs in our kids' ministry, and we needed to teach it on Wednesday nights to our students. So this is a church-wide thing that we're doing uh, in order to help you have more conversations about what you're learning at home, with your kids, with your spouse, we've taken an extra step, and for the next few weeks, you'll find a conversation guide on our website, on our Facebook page, so you can visit crosspointcity.com, get it in the blog section, or get it through social media, but we want you to download it and use it around the dinner table this week to talk to your kids or your spouse. If you're not married, you don't have kids, talk to your friends, just talk to somebody, and tell each other what God's doing in your life and what you're learning. We really pray that that'll be a valuable resource to you and, and that it'll be helpful as you kind of talk to your family and your kids and your friends about Jesus and uh, what he's doing in your life, all right? The second thing I'll mention is this. Uh, we don't want that experience to only be limited to the series. Like, we want you to get that experience of talking to other people about what God's teaching you and what you're learning week after week. And the way that you do that here at Crosspoint is through groups. I'll say it like this. Here's how much we value groups. We are not a church with groups. We are a church of groups. Does this make sense? This is the cornerstone of who we are. I heard a statement this summer while I was away on sabbatical that has stuck with me. The crowd happens on the weekends. Church happens in the homes. We really believe that here. Uh, our goal is to get every person who makes up this church connected in community with a group of people uh, for care, for spiritual growth, for mission. We just want you to know people and be known by people. And we don't want you to miss out on the power of community. So you can find one of these guides out in our lobby at the group's table. It, uh, it explains every group that is available, tells you about the group leader, gives you info on when and where they meet. And if you have any questions about that, you can just ask. But we're signing up for groups all month long. So I really want to encourage you to take that step. And here's the great news. We do groups on 10-week cycles. 
So if you sign up for one and you go, well, that was awful. Well, 10 weeks, you can get out, right? You can just get in a new group. So congratulations, we've made it easy for you, okay? Just find one that works and stick with it. Well, if you have a Bible or a device with a version Bible app on it, uh, grab those things. Go to John chapter 2 with me. John chapter 2. As I said a moment ago, last Sunday we started a new series called Pursuit. And in this series, we're simply learning how to practically and effectively live out the mission that God has given us as his church. Now, if you're wondering, well, James, what is that mission? What does it look like? I would really encourage you to visit crosspointcity.com this week. Uh, Listen or watch to the message I preached two weeks ago. It's called The Simplicity of Mission. And in that message, I preached in a very detailed manner what the mission is and what it looks like. But here it is in a nutshell, all right? It's really simple. It's this, pursuing people with the hope and love of Jesus in order to help them become his followers. That's the simple mission God's given us. Now, as we said last Sunday, in order for us to understand the how of that mission, we first need to understand the who of that mission. You see, the who that the mission is founded upon ultimately gives us clarity on how the mission can be accomplished. And church, this morning, I want you to answer this question, who is our mission founded upon? Sunday school answer, please. Jesus, there you go. You could have never been to church before and got that right, right? Just yell Jesus and and you're probably getting it right. Jesus, Jesus, the eternal son of God, is the one who gives us a human picture of how to accomplish the mission that God has given us as his church. You see, the Bible teaches that when you and I were at our worst, spiritually dead, stuck in sin, deserving of God's wrath and judgment, unable to change our lives or save ourselves, what did Jesus do? He pursued us. When you and I could make our way to God, the God of the universe made his way to us. And as we learned last Sunday, the way that he did that is known as the incarnation. For those that missed it, incarnation simply means God became a man. As John tells us in John 1.14, Jesus, who is God a couple thousand years ago, wrapped himself in flesh and he came to live among us. That was step one in his pursuit of broken, sinful people, people like you and me. And step two, which is the step we're talking about today, it was this. Jesus, after coming to the earth as a man, spent his life building a very particular type of reputation that ultimately allowed him to connect relationally with people that God loved and wanted to save. And what we learn from this is simple. That if you and I are going to pursue people like Jesus pursued people... Our reputations matter. Now, to get us all on the same page, I thought I'd just give you a simple definition definition for that word reputation. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here it is. Reputation is simply what people think of when they think of you. What people think of when they think of you. Contrary to what some people think and believe, uh, your reputation is not what you think of when you think of yourself. You get that, right? But you might consider yourself to be a passionate and honest person like I consider myself to be. But if your name comes up in conversation and other people say, that guy's the biggest jerk I know. That woman, she's so rude. She's critical. She complains all the time. Like that's your reputation. Reputation is what other people think of when they think of you. Now back to Jesus. What did other people think of when they thought of Jesus? Well, when you read the Bible, you find that the answer is it depends. It all depended on who you asked. See, Jesus had a certain reputation with the religious elite of his day, and he had a different reputation with those that fell outside the religious elite 
category. We'll just call them the others for our purposes. And just so that this makes sense, I'll tell you what they thought of Jesus. And, uh, and you can find all of this, uh, you can find all of these examples, all these explanations concerning Jesus in the gospel. So read them for yourself. First, the religious leaders of his day thought of him as an illegitimate child, a deceiver, mentally ill, demon-possessed, a drunkard, Satan in the flesh, a blasphemer, and a heretic. It's pretty harsh, right? That's who they thought Jesus was. The others, those that fell outside the category of religious elite, they thought of Jesus as kind, compassionate, healer, defender, authoritative teacher, God in the flesh, Lord, Savior, King, and friend. Now, you might wonder, why the vast disparity in Jesus' reputation between these two groups? Like, how could these two groups of people perceive him so differently? Well, we find a picture in John chapter 2 that gives us the answer to that question. So if you have your Bibles already open there, John 2, we're going to start reading in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we'd love to give you a free one at our connection desk before you leave if you don't own one. But for now, you can follow along with me, all right? Here's what the Bible says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, let's stop and talk about this for a moment. Look, during Jesus' day, wedding celebrations typically lasted a full week. Can you imagine that? Like, I have two little girls at home. Thank God today we get it done in a couple of hours. Like, I can't imagine a full week, but it went on a full week, and it was the responsibility of the groom and his family to provide enough food and enough wine to last throughout the celebration. Now, what we find in this passage is simple. The groom and his family failed to make the proper preparations. The wine ran out. We don't know if it ran out because extra guests showed up. Uh, we don't know if, if the guests that did show up just really liked to drink. Or maybe the family, they were just under-resourced. They were poor. They couldn't afford to provide uh, all the wine that was needed. At the end of the day, we just know it ran out. And so because it ran out, here's what would have happened. The groom and his family, they would have been highly ashamed, highly embarrassed. Families could even be fined money for allowing food or wine to run out at a celebration like this. And Jesus' mom comes and, and tells him what's going on, and, and I want you to see how he responds to her. Look at this, verse 4. And Jesus says back to his mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, before we start assuming Jesus is being a jerk to his mom here, let me explain the cultural and spiritual significance of this statement. Uh, the first thing you need to know is this. That word woman, it's not how we'd use it in our culture today, right? Derogatory way. This was actually a term of affection during Jesus' day. It, it was a polite way to refer to your mother. When Jesus says to her, mom, what's this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. All he's saying is this. Uh, it's not time for me to put my glory on display yet. Mom, it's not time for me to make known to these people who I am. Ultimately, his hour for doing that would come through his death and his resurrection. But I love it in verse 5. Nevertheless, Mary says to the servants at the wedding, just do whatever he tells you to do. Like I think she was believing in that moment that her son was going to do the good and gracious thing. And that's exactly what we find him doing. Uh, keep reading verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars, water jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification. Uh, during this time in history, the Jewish people would partake in certain hand-washing rituals before they ate a meal. This is the Jewish rites of purification that are being spoke of. 
And the Bible told us six stone jars were there for that purpose, and each of them would hold between 20 or 30 gallons of water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And this is where the miracle happens. Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. I love this. The servants, though, they knew who had drawn the water, or uh, who, who had converted the water. The master of the feast, he called the bridegroom, I love it, straight beeline to the groom at the wedding, tasted, and he goes and starts singing this guy's praises. Everyone serves the good wine first. At a wedding during this time, the family would always put out the best wine at the beginning of the celebration. The best wine was the most aged wine. It was the most undiluted wine. And over the course of the party, people would enjoy the wine. They would drink freely, as we're told. And because they were drinking so freely, by the end of the celebration, they would not realize they were drinking the watered-down $8 stuff that you buy in boxes. Are you with me? Right? Everybody puts out the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they put out the poor stuff. But groom, you and your family, you've kept the good wine until now. Look at this moment, this groom and his family go from being ashamed and embarrassed to praised and honored. And why? Well, all because Jesus, God in the flesh, turned 180 gallons of water into the best wine anyone had ever tasted and took absolutely no credit for it. Now, I want you to keep that story in your mind because we're going to come back to it in a moment. But for now, let's keep reading. I want you to see what happens next. Verse 13, jump there with me. John tells us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those that were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, let's stop and talk. Uh, Passover week, John tells us this was a celebration that the Jewish people took part in every year, and thousands and thousands of Jewish people would travel into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate together that God had freed their ancestors from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Now, part of selling pa- or celebrating Passover meant visiting the temple in Jerusalem to make an animal sacrifice, both as an act of worship and as a sacrifice for your sin. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus, he decides to pay a visit to the temple, and when he arrives there, the temple is set up like a store or a marketplace. There are temple leaders who are selling sacrificial animals to people showing up to the temple to meet with God. And they did this for two primary reasons. One, as a matter of convenience. Like for all those people that were traveling great distances into the city uh, to celebrate Passover and to visit the temple, keeping up with an animal on that long journey was a hassle. And so they knew, man, if I show up to the temple, I can just buy one there and it's not going to be a big deal. Don't have to keep up with my own. The second reason the temple leaders sold animals uh, was this. It was a means of financial gain. It's a means of financial gain. Oftentimes, even when people would bring their own animals, the temple leaders, they would inspect them before they were offered. There were certain rules and certain qualifications. You can find them in the Old Testament for sacrificial animals. And these temple leaders would, would find the smallest imperfections, the smallest blemishes. And they would tell the people, you're, you're sacrificed your animal. It's not good. You've got to buy one of ours. And this is where the money changers come into play. You see, you couldn't buy a sacrificial animal at the temple with any kind of money you wanted. You had to use temple money. 
And so you'd have to go to the money changers table, exchange your money for their money, and of course you had to pay a fee to do so, and then you could go buy the animal you wanted for uh, uh, an inflated price. This is the scene Jesus walks into, and I want you to see how he responds. Look at this. Keep reading, verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. Can you imagine this scene with me? Look at this passage. We don't find a blue-eyed, feathered, blonde hair, petting a baby lamb Jesus, right? We find angry Jesus. A Jesus who's so angry that he steps outside for a moment to make his own whip. How angry do you have to be to make your own whip? I can just picture him. He's standing outside the temple. He's seating. He's tying this thing together. And when he gets it finished, he runs back inside and he drives all the temple leaders out the doors. He's pouring out money. He's flipping over tables. And then he yells at all of them, get this stuff out of here and quit treating my father's house like it's town center mall. My paraphrase, by the way, right? Look, I, I think when you, when you get this, when you understand what's happening in these stories, it starts to make sense, doesn't it? But when you picture Jesus going to this wedding and, and to the temple, it becomes a lot easier to see why this vast disparity. And just for clarity's sake, we want to talk about together the details of really what played out because I really want you to see why they thought so differently of Jesus. So go back to the wedding scene with me again, all right? Uh, think about what Jesus did. Three things, primarily. One, and if you're taking notes, you can write this stuff down. One, at the wedding, Jesus showed up and he partied with the locals. And if partied is too heathen a word for you, just write down celebrated, right? Same thing. He celebrated with the locals. I love that the Bible tells us that Jesus wasn't a tag-along to the wedding with his mom, right? He wasn't that guy. He actually got invited to the wedding, and he went, and he brought a crew of his own guys with him. When's the last time you got invited to a heathen wedding? It's a good question for us to wrestle with, isn't it? He got invited. He went. To me, this suggests that Jesus wasn't some uptight, rigid, stuffy guy constantly worrying about what other people thought of him. During a time in history when the religious leaders of his day were so concerned with their reputations that they avoided certain people in certain places, Jesus did the opposite. He invested relationally in people that God loved and wanted to save at the expense of his reputation. It's beautiful, right? The second thing he did at the wedding is this. He served others selflessly. Have you ever shown up somewhere as a guest and been given a job? That ever happened to you? Like you go to your friend's house for dinner and you walk in the door and they hand you a broom. Perfect timing. We were just finishing cleaning up. You can help. That's what happened to Jesus. He goes to the wedding like everybody else to enjoy it and the wine runs out. Something needs to be done. He has the power to do it and he does it without calling any attention to himself. He serves selflessly. And the third thing Jesus does at the wedding is this. He rescued those in need. He rescued those in need. I mentioned this earlier, but the groom and his family, they were in trouble. Not only had their wine ran out, but they were going to be the laughing stock of their community. The bad news is they could do nothing in that moment to rescue themselves from that shame, that embarrassment, and that guilt. But Jesus could do something. And he did it. 
not only did he rescue them by making the wine that was needed, he rescued them by restoring dignity and honor back to their family name. And can I tell you what I love so much about the story? Jesus uses servants to pull it all off. He chooses the lowliest people at the wedding celebration to put his power on display and to meet the needs of others. I think that should speak to some of us today. Some of us who walked in the doors wondering, can God use me? Can God do anything with my life? Here's who I am. Here's who I've been. Here's what I feel like I'm lacking. Can God use me? The answer is absolutely yes. God can use you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you've been. It doesn't matter what you think you're lacking. God can use you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. I pray that encourages you today. Think about the temple with me. Two things Jesus did there. One, he defended the poor and the powerless. He defended the poor and the powerless. It's heartbreaking to think that the temple leaders, men who were giving the ta- given the task of caring for the people of God, protecting the people of God, pointing the people of God back to him, were exploiting people for their own personal gain. And they weren't just exploiting people who fell above a certain socioeconomic level. They exploited the poor and the powerless. And we see this truth reflected in the fact that that Jesus speaks directly to those selling pigeons in the temple. You see, pigeons were the, uh, the sacrifice choice for the poorest of the poor. When a person couldn't afford a lamb or even a dove, they would bring a pigeon. That was their sacrifice. So imagine it with me. Imagine a poor widow walking into the temple. She has no husband. She has no way of taking care of herself. Women during Jesus' day couldn't hold jobs. They couldn't own property. She's probably a beggar. She comes into the temple. She brings her own pigeon. The temple leaders inspect it, and they say, your bird's no good. You're going to have to buy one of ours. And so she goes to the money changer's table, and she puts what little money she has on the table, and they tell her, look, it's going to cost all of it because you have to pay us this fee for us to give you what you need. This is what Jesus experienced. These were the practices going on in the temple that infuriated him. And we find him in righteous anger, standing between the religious leaders and these poor, powerless people and acting on their behalf. The second thing Jesus did in the temple was this. He stood up to religious abusers. I love the fact that Jesus didn't just stand with those being abused. He stood against those doing the abusing. Jesus literally picked a fight in public with the religious leaders of, their, of his day for their unjust treatment of people who needed God the most. He flipped over the tables. He's throwing their money around. He's hitting people with whips. That's insane. And then he yells at them. He rebukes them for their shady business practices all in front of the crowds of people gathered both inside and outside the temple. Look, in that moment, Jesus was declaring war on the religious system of his day, this man-made system that kept people who needed God the most from him. This is why the religious elite hated him. It's one of the reasons that they wanted Jesus put to death. Again, I think you'd agree at this point that knowing the details of these stories provide great clarity on the disparity in his reputation in the eyes of these two people, right? But when you know the details and you put yourself in the shoes of these people, you can start to understand why they thought different things when they thought of Jesus. Consider the conversations that probably played out after each of these incidents. I mean, I can just hear the servants at the wedding talking, right? Can you believe what just happened? 
That brother just pulled a David Copperfield, turned 180 gallons of water into wine, used us to help, and then he acted like it wasn't him. He let the groom take all the credit. That was the most miraculous, selfless, compassionate thing I've ever seen anyone do. Think about the disciples. Verse 11 tells us that that it was after this miracle that his disciples started believing in him. Like, I can hear their conversation. One of them says to the group, guys, you think it's him? You think it's him? Could it be the one that God has promised to send us for centuries? Now, you think it's the Savior, the Messiah, King of heaven and earth. And one of the other guys speaks up and says, how could it not be him? It has to be. After what we just saw, it has to be him. Think about the poor and powerless people, what they were saying when they walked away from the temple that day. I like that guy. The Jesus guy, he's all right. Never seen anything like that. He defended God and he defended us like his life depended upon it. That's a guy I could believe in. That's a guy I could follow. And we can hear the religious leaders, can't we? Joe, hear what happened today? This crazy guy, Jesus, showed up and wrecked the place. Flipped over our tables. No idea where the sheep and oxen ran off to. He lost it. He he hit Billy with a whip. I mean, who does that, right? Must be mentally ill. Must be demon-possessed. Could have been drunk for all we know. I mean, I did hear there was a ton of wine at that wedding he came from earlier in the week. You start to understand it. Look, here's the takeaway. Here's the takeaway. This disparity in Jesus' reputation simply proves that, that he, God in the flesh, came to this earth to pursue lost, broken, sinful people, people like you and me, and that he refused to let anything or anyone stand in his way. Look, if accomplishing his mission meant destroying the religious system of his day, if it, if it meant upsetting those who had established that system in order to keep people who were far from God from him, he was willing to do it no matter the cost to his reputation. But here's what was beautiful. Because of who Jesus was, people that he loved and came to save knew him as he's meant to be known. So what in the world do we do with that today? Like, what does the disparity in Jesus' reputation mean for our own reputations? And more importantly, how do you and I assume the reputation of Jesus so that we can accomplish the mission he's given us as his church? Well, let me give you four things to answer that question, all right? If you're taking notes, you can write this stuff down. First, if we're going to assume the reputation of Jesus and accomplish his mission as a church, we have to let go of our own reputations. That's where it starts. We have to let go of our own reputations. I know that's a whole lot easier said than done. So let me give you a few keys to letting go, all right? First is this. Every day, you have to take your own reputation to the cross. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean take your reputation to the cross? I mean every day, you've got to get out of bed and you have to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. As we sang earlier, you have to remember that Jesus, God in the flesh... He died in your place for your sins. He rose from the dead on your behalf. And he did that so that you could ultimately die to yourself each and every day. Jesus gave up his life for you so that you could give up your life for him and for other people. And church, when you and I are busy giving up our lives for him and other people, life is no longer about us. And when life is no longer about us, it becomes so much easier to let go of our own reputations, doesn't it? That's where it has to start. You have to put your reputation to death through the cross of Christ every single day. The second thing is this. You have to choose daily an audience to live for. 
You have to choose daily an audience to live for. And here's the choice you have to make. Is your audience going to be God or is your audience going to be people? Now look, let's be honest. All of us in the room, including this guy standing on the stage, suffer from people-pleasing syndrome at times, don't we? All of us. We all care what people think. We all care what people say about us. We want people to like us, to respect us, to say nice things about us. When our name comes up in conversation, we hope that people think great things about who we are. We care. Even those of us in the room who go, I don't care. We care. We care. Here's the question that matters most. What do you care about more? Do you care more about what God thinks of you? Or do you care more about what people think of you? Look, if your answer at the end of the day is people, here's the result. You will compromise day in and day out who God has created you, saved you, and called you to be. And in doing so, you will miss out on living a life of purpose and mission. This is why I would encourage you to matter or to care more each day about what God thinks. Look, when it's all said and done in life and in death, all that matters is what God thinks of you. That's it. All that matters is what he thinks. Live each day for an audience of one. The last thing is this. If you're going to let go of your own reputation... You have to make it a matter of prayer, daily prayer. You can't do this on your own. You need God's help. I felt like when I was writing this message, God gave me a picture of, of prayer as it concerns our reputations. And in my mind, I just I pictured somebody just holding on to something tightly, clinging to it, death grip, refusing to let go out of pride or out of fear. I think some of us know what it's like to be in that place with our reputations, don't we? We worry so much about what other people think. And out of pride, out of fear, we refuse to let go of trying to manipulate or control our own reputations. Here's prayer. You ready? Prayer is how we ask God and allow God to pry our fingers off of caring. It's how we allow God to take our reputations from us. A simple prayer to pray each day is this. It helps me. It's right from the Bible, John 3.30. Jesus increase that I might decrease. Jesus, increase that I might decrease. Jesus, become greater in my life that I might become less and less. I guarantee you this. The more time you spend in prayer asking God to help you let go of your own reputation, the more God will have his way in and through you. The second thing is this. If we're going to assume the reputation of Jesus and live out his mission, we as a church have to be willing to befriend sinners without befriending sin. We have to befriend sinners without befriending sin. There is a dangerous myth alive in our culture today that says this. If you love someone, you must accept all that they do. And if you don't accept all that they do, you're an unloving, judgmental bigot. Can I just tell you, that's garbage. It's just not true. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is refuse to accept what other people are doing. And we find this to be true in the life of Jesus Look, do you know Jesus was perfectly holy, yet he never allowed his moral superiority to keep people at a distance? In other words, Jesus never sinned, but he was a friend to sinners. He had this amazing ability to love people really well without approving of, accepting, or participating in the sin that they were involved in. Church, that's the tension of following Jesus. The tension of following Jesus is this. We have to befriend sinful people without befriending the sin that they're trapped in. You and I each day have to grow in holiness without becoming holier than thou people. You know the kind of people I'm talking about, right? 
Following Jesus is about walking with him closely while coming close to people that he loves and wants to save. And I know some of us might be thinking, well, James, if, if I do that, bro, uh, am I not suggesting that I'm approving or accepting of the sin that they're involved in? I, I would answer that in two ways. Um, in the eyes of the religious, maybe. But in reality, absolutely not. Listen, I've said this before, taught it before. If you're taking notes, write it down. I know it's new for some of you. Proximity does not equal permission. Proximity does not equal permission. All proximity does is allow you to love as Jesus loves, to serve as Jesus serves, and to put on display the ways that Jesus is changing your life day by day and moment by moment. Church, if Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, shouldn't you and I as his followers be known as the same? The third thing is this. If we're going to assume the reputation of Jesus and live out his mission, we have to fight for what matters to God. We have to fight for what matters to God. Now, I want to be really clear here, all right? Our goal as Christ followers is never to fight with people. You with me? The goal is to fight for people. We don't set out to offend for the sake of offending. We don't set out to upset for the sake of upsetting. Like God calls us to stand on behalf of those who are hurting, broken, powerless, stuck in sin. He wants us to defend the defenseless, to speak for those who have no voice, to protect those who are being kept from God, from those people that want to keep them from him. Now here's the unfortunate news, right? And we find this playing out in Jesus' life. Fighting for people can at times lead to fights with people. But we're never supposed to be going and hunting down fights. Look, I experienced this firsthand in my life years ago when my wife and I decided to move to Miami, Florida to help a good friend of mine plant a church. I have to be honest and tell you, I was not ready for some of the conversations that I had with church people in my life. One of the most common questions I got was this. Uh, James, why would you go to Miami? Do you know what kind of people live there? And I had a canned response every time, and I said it with a smile on my face. Yes, that's why we're going. People there need Jesus, and we want to take Jesus to them. But I'll tell you, that question led to some heated discussions with religious, churchy people in my life, people that I loved, people that I, that I assumed got it. I found myself fighting with people at times because of my desire to fight for people who were far from God and needed his hope and salvation. Here's what I took away from that experience, and it's something we all have to be ready for. If we are going to take our mission as a church seriously, our mission to pursue people with the hope and love of Jesus in order to help them become his followers, I want you to know not everybody is going to have nice things to say about us. And that includes those who claim to be following the same Jesus we know. We have to fight for what matters to God. The last thing is this, and, and this really takes me into my last point. If we want to assume the reputation of Jesus and live out his mission, we have to trust God as our defender. We have to trust God as our defender. I will never forget a conflict that arose between me and another person in the first church I ever served in. I was a 19-year-old youth pastor. I had no idea what I was doing. And it was this conflict that happened. And as a result, my name started being drugged through the mud. I had never experienced uh, before that time what it was like to be attacked both personally and publicly. And so I sat down with one of the other pastors on staff. He had been doing ministry way longer than me. I said, man, what am I supposed to do about this? Like in my mind, I'm thinking, I need to call a press conference and dispel all these myths and lies being told. I'll never forget what he said. He said, James, just trust God as your defender. 
He said, here's what you do, man. You love Jesus and you follow him and you let your character speak for itself. Never forget that. I think some of us need to be reminded of that truth today. Your job is not to control or to manipulate what other people think about you. Some of us sitting in this room today have probably done some things we are ashamed of. We, things that, that cause guilt to rise up in us. And we're here because we want to follow Jesus. We want to love him. We want to live out his mission. People are going to say stuff about you along the way. Here's what you got to trust. You ready? That if you're loving and following Jesus, God has your back. That if you're pressing into who Jesus is and you're walking in obedience to him, that as a loved son or daughter of God, his promises are good for you. Romans 12, 19, God tells us when people attack us, God's going to repay them. Vengeance will be his. We don't have to defend ourselves. He's got it. God has two little girls at home. Like, I believe him. I can't imagine if somebody messed around with my girls. Like, I'd want to show up and repay and, you know, take a little vengeance. I know I'm not supposed to do it, okay? So, but, but God says, you're a loved son. You're a loved daughter. I, I got you. You just trust me. Church, we have to trust that God has us. And in those moments when we worry, oh, what are other people going to think? What are people going to say? We have to remember all that matters is what God thinks and all that matters is what God says. In closing, I'll say this. I truly believe that as a church we have to get this reputation thing right. Too often times when you go out into the world and, and you ask people outside the walls of buildings like this what they think of when they think of Jesus and what they think of when they think of Christians, there is a vast disparity in his reputation versus ours. Church, it should never be that way. When the world is asked, what do you think of Jesus and what do you think of his followers? They should be able to say the same things about our lives as they say about his life. But again, like I said earlier, I, I know that in order for that to happen, one of the things we have to do is we have to make it a matter of prayer. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're just going to pray and we're going to respond to God in these next few moments. So I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes with me. Let's get our hearts ready for this time. Look, before I, I pray for us, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to give you permission on a couple things, all right? Before we came out this morning, we were praying for you. And one of the things that we prayed for all the gatherings taking place today is that they wouldn't just be normal gatherings, that we wouldn't show up and just do church like we always do church but that we'd encounter God today in a powerful way, in a way that would leave us changed, in a way that would send us out the doors, different people. So I, I don't want this time just to be another time where we say we're gonna respond to God and we sing a song and we leave. Look, I wanna give you permission to respond to God how he's leading you. And if you wanna get out of your seat and come kneel at the front of this room as an altar before God and and cry out to him, you do that. I'm going to invite our prayer team up in just a moment. If you need people to pray for you and with you, do that. There's such power in that. James 5 tells us that the, the prayer of a righteous man is effective. I don't know what, what you need prayer for. If, it, if it's simply you needing to let go of what other people think, you, you needing to put sin to death, push pride or fear away, I don't know. All I know is that other people praying for you is powerful. And God uses that to move in your life. So if you need that, then let people pray for you. If you want to sit at your seat, kneel at your chair, whatever, stand and sing a song. I don't care. I just want you to be courageous and say yes to God. And feel the freedom to move as he's leading. 
If you're on our prayer team, I, I'm going to go ahead and just invite you to come forward and to get in your places at the front of the room. And as they're making their way, let me just pray for us, God. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life he lived. Thank you for, for the death he died. Thank you for the new life he offers. Thank you that he gives us such a clear picture of, of who we're called to be, created to be, saved to be in this world. God, we don't want to be content being those people that just sit around and wait to die in order to experience your kingdom. We want to experience your kingdom here, now. So God, help us. Help us. Give us what we need to live the life you've called us to live, to pursue people like you've called us to pursue people, to be the church that, that takes your simple mission seriously. God, meet with us right now in this place. God, do a work in our lives that might leave us forever changed. God, we love you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus.